Good morning, friends. You can hear me? Well, I'm Kenny, and I got introduced by name and, and church I'm from, Grace E.B. Free Church in La Mirada. And right as we were just finishing that song, I just wanted to start by saying it's a double joy this morning. One, to have the first time opportunity to just preach to you all here in this chapel, Ponderosa Chapel, where for 15, 16 years, our church has been bringing up students here. I've worshipped alongside students in this room, have super sweet memories of that. Uh, worship in here with my family coming up here for weeks of the Hume teaching series. But it's a double joy because of how many of my Grace family people are all scattered through here all over camp. Real quick, just raise your hand and give a shout out. If you're from Grace, I, I share that not to brag about our church, but to say we really do feel at Grace like we partner with Hume when we send up summer staff and when you steal away some of our precious people to be full-time staff like the Weavers over here. And Jen Smith, that's right. In fact, as we were singing that last song, you know, parents in the room, have you ever been somewhere and all of a sudden you heard a voice and you're like, that's one of my kids. You just knew it? Well, Jordan's not one of my kids, but I heard his tenor voice belting out that last chorus. I didn't know he was sitting right there. I'm like, that's Jordan right there. Anyway, so it's a double joy to get to be here this morning and, and preach. Um, let me introduce my family just so you know who they are. They're sitting in the front row. I won't make them stand up. So here's a picture. A recent selfie down at the beach this last year. But so my wife, Betsy, there in the back. Uh, Lily Mae, our oldest, 17, just graduated high school, about to start Biola in the fall. And bragging rights, last summer she co-won Kajabi finals her week with Keir Martin. But they made them face off and Kira took it. So she got to sign the can and you didn't. But I'm super proud. Uh, Levi, over on the left, he's 15, going to be a sophomore in high school, and Elijah smiling in the back. He's almost about to turn 10, going in the fourth grade, maybe going to wagon train next year after seeing that video this morning, do you think? Yeah. Maybe. So Betsy and I actually, the other special thing being here is Betsy and I, we are camp staff romance. We met not here at Hume, but we both grew up going to Forest Home, that other camp down in Southern California, that smaller camp. I grew up thinking, I hear about Hume Lake and always thought, no, Forest Home is it. And the first summer we came here and we saw like how extra you guys go for everything like this. And I thought about our measly like stage decorations and our copyright infringed openers like the Kingdom Strikes Back <laughs> where my wife was C-3PO, had no speaking lines and it still made her so nervous that she got sick to her stomach every Sunday night. And it was just reused from the last year as a yellow Power Rangers costume, I think, but... And I was Darth Vader, and I sang. I'm sure that if Star Wars knew about Forest Home, they would have come after me for singing. This Death Star will come out tomorrow in our opener. It was terrible. <laughs> but we met at camp, uh, fell in love at camp. Betsy would say the first sign that she could tell. She, she clued in early. She, she was interested early, and I was the slow one to come along. And she realized when I started hanging around and following her to the craft cabin and just sitting and doing crafts while she did crafts that something must have been up. And it was. So we uh, met 95 and 96. That seems like forever ago. Uh, I want to show you one other picture. So I came across this. So on the left, that's 96 when we started dating. We're sitting on the, the, the wall in front of Tucker Cabin, our, one of our staff cabins, and I shot a picture there. We were brand new dating. Campers didn't even know it. And uh, 20 years ago for our anniversary, I called up Super Secret and I lined up Tucker Cabin and said, can we come stay up for a weekend for our 20th anniversary? And so we decided to recreate the photo anyway. So that was 20 years apart, but um, we love camp and we love what God does through camp ministries. Um, you know, I've been on staff at Grace now since 2001, almost 22 years in December, which is crazy when I think about it. I had 
in 2001, I just graduated seminary. I had zero gray hair. I had one wife, no kids. We did have a dog. And now I have all gray hairs. I still have the same beautiful wife, three children, and a new border collie. And none of the gray hair is because of stress. I think it's because of love. I think that I'm, I'm convinced that's what makes the gray hair come out. So it's all gray and my dad's DNA. But serving at the same church for that amount of time is a special thing. Even in the last couple of years, getting to officiate weddings or dedicate children, and these parents had been in our nursery or Sunday school is an awesome thing, and they're serving as small group leaders and helping lead worship and things like that. So I'm very thankful to have been uh, stayed put in one place for one time. But it's fun to take one Sunday off from Grace and be up here with you all. Um, at Grace, I oversee our preaching team uh, and, and our sung worship from week to week. Um, but it's really an honor to be up here this week. Um, I want to give a quick intro. If you're going to be around this week for the Hume Teaching Series, I got called in as a sub just two weeks ago. Uh, I was super excited to put the shirt on and come up. Um, but here's what we're going to be talking about if you come out any of the evenings this week for the Hume Teaching Series. Um, I'm calling the series Becoming Like Jesus by Beholding Jesus. And it comes from just one verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me read it. Paul describes the way that we grow in Christ like this. He says, we all, with unveiled face, because the Holy Spirit made we who are dead alive in Christ and gave us new eyes to see his glory. So now with unveiled face, Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And two reasons I love that verse and come back to it a lot. One, it reminds me to be patient because it says this happens gradually by degrees, sometimes fractions of degrees, and it might feel imperceptible or some days like it's going in reverse. But it also reminds me at the heart how it happens. And actually, I love when the singing comes along, right alongside with, with, with where we're going to be going. But we sang about it a lot this morning, and that is in one way or another saying, God, would you lift Jesus high in my mind and my heart? And Paul says that happens as we behold his glory. We keep looking. We don't keep just looking at ourselves to see are we getting better, but we just keep looking at the glory of the Lord. Beholding him little by little, he transforms us by degrees to look more and more like him. So that's what we're going to be thinking about through the Gospel of Luke. Let me read this, though. Anyone familiar with Dane Ortland? He's written a couple of phenomenal books in the last couple of years. Uh, Gentle and Lowly, maybe you've read. And a second book called Deeper, How uh, Real Change for Real Sinners. And in that, at the beginning, he says this. He says, I think a common reason we may not seem to be growing in Christ often is this. I'm quoting. That we have a domesticated view of Jesus. That for all its doctrinal precision, so he's not saying we have a false view of Jesus. He says for all its doctrinal precision, it's just been downsized in our hearts in here. And he says, let me suggest that you consider the possibility that your current mental idea of Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg, that there are wondrous depths to him and realities about him. Still awaiting your discovery, is the Jesus you're following a junior varsity Jesus, an unwittingly reduced Jesus, an unsurprising predictable Jesus? Have we reduced him to manageable proportions? Have we been looking at a decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows, thinking that we've hit the bottom of the Pacific? 
It was in another, one of those last songs. On the one hand, his glory far exceeds what we're ever able to fully comprehend. And so with that in view, we should recognize here into eternity, we're always going to be saying, God, lift him up. This downsized Jesus of our perception, it's not that Jesus needs us to lift him up or magnify him. He's already as big as he is. He needs us to have an enlarged perception. So this week, we're going to take four passages in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at and behold the glory of Jesus from a few different angles, asking him by degrees to keep transforming us into his image. So that's what's coming this week. We'd love to have you come. I'd love to have you come and join us. If you do, introduce yourself to me and my wife. We'd love to meet you this week, uh, meet your families, hear your stories. Um, Oh, last thing I was going to say. So the four angles of Jesus we're going to look at. He's our faithful Savior, who's our only comfort in life and death. Uh, He's our richest treasure. He's the only one in whom really abundant life can be found. Uh, He's our good shepherd who seeks and saves us when we're lost and delights over us with great joy when we're found. And finally, and foundationally, he alone uh, is our perfect righteousness. And then Thursday night is going to be a little different. Instead of beholding Jesus through preaching, we're going to do it through singing, and we're going to spend the whole evening singing hymns that help us reflect on these facets of the glory of Jesus. So we'd love for you to stick through the whole week. So this morning, this really could fit in this because this is another facet of the glory of Jesus, but as I've been thinking about camp and reminiscing, thinking about coming up here and reminiscing about our summers at Forest Home, you know, 10 weeks in a row, we remember that grind. We were thinking about this is week six for you, and we remember that feeling of like, wow, we're so tired, and there's four weeks to go, and we don't want to lose steam for these students who are coming up, but I was remembering how every week there was this sort of arc, and there'd be all this excitement building through the week, but about halfway through the week, we we would turn our focus as the leaders and the, the teachers at camp to be preparing our students to go back down the hill, we would say, you know, for life back down the hill, because life isn't like the camp high. It's, it's not all just the, the wreck and the excitement and the fun and the, and the share, deep memories, uh, but it's about the real life in a fallen world that didn't go away while we were at camp and is waiting for us when we came back down home. We wanted to help prepare students not to have this cold, jarring, oh yeah, reality check of how hard their life was that they forgot for a moment at camp. And what I love about Hume and Forest Home and so many camps like you is that you don't exist to create just a week of diversion, just to get kids and and adults' minds off of their problems for a week. Um, That's just a Band-Aid. But you exist here to introduce young and old to Jesus, who's the cornerstone, who's our great high priest, who Hebrews 6.19 says is like a sure, steadfast anchor for our soul so that we can flee to him for refuge and have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Camp is to prepare us for living in a real world and getting our eyes fixed on the one hope that can get us through it. And that's what I want to do this morning with the help of God's spirit and the word. I want to encourage each of you to run the race that's before you with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as was just prayed, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I do not know what each of you, the griefs that you might be bearing today You know that they didn't just stay home. They they follow us like a cloud. They hang on our shoulders. Me too. 
And I'd like to look at Jesus this morning from one particularly comforting angle, and that is this little phrase from Isaiah 53, that Jesus was acquainted with grief. You know that line? Chapter 53 of Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be a suffering servant. He'd suffer in many ways, but one of them, it says, is that Jesus would um, be uh, acquainted with grief. January 2021, so this is now a couple of years ago, but it still feels very fresh. January 2021 for our family was a particularly acute season of grief. Um, We were still one year, obviously, you guys all lived through it, out of this this fog of COVID, right? And one night, January 15th, I'd gotten home from the office and I was just beginning to cook dinner and I got a call from my dad's uh, friend nearby who would check in on him from time to time um, saying my dad wasn't doing very well. Now, we live close enough, I would check on him as well, but sometimes my dad wouldn't text or call. He was homebound, he had pulmonary disease, he he, he really didn't leave the house anymore. And so this guy, John, would check in on him really kindly. And he called me one night and just said, I think you need to come over. He just doesn't seem really well. So I turn off the oven, drive across town, and pretty quickly we both decide, John and I decide to call 911. And they come and take him to the hospital, and they say after, you know, days of tests, since he had had atrial fibrillation, and the damage to his heart was going to be irreversible, and uh, uh, he wasn't going to be able to go back to his apartment. I mean, it was, this, this was serious. And so over the next two weeks, I had this surreal experience as his oldest son of simultaneously going back and forth between planning for two eventualities at the same time. I'd go from, on one hand, trying to make plans for where can we have him live if he comes out of the hospital and the Lord gives him more time, and how will we pay for that? On the other hand, how are we going to deal with all of his things and be prepared for that if this is his time? And doing this both at the same time, we began emptying his apartment out because we had to, to uh, let go of the lease because we knew he wasn't going to go back there. And we're doing that while he's across town in this residential care home. It was just strange. I remember Psalm 103, verses 5 and 6, 15 and 16, I mean, taking on this whole new level of sobriety. It says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes Like a flower of the field, the wind passes over it, it's gone, and its place knows it no more. And as we were doing this, I felt like we were erasing the evidence of his existence even before he was gone. His decline was pretty fast, though. It ended up being two weeks with a lot of indignities. My my brother flew back from North Carolina where he'd moved and, and was able to be there in time. And he and I sat on either side of my dad's bedside on a Sunday morning as my Uh, friend and now fellow elder at Grace, Rob Lister, preached over our live stream to us at my dad's bedside on life and death from the book of Proverbs. And the sermon had finished, and within five minutes, his breathing slowed, and we sort of prayed over him and just spoke comforting words, and, and he was gone. Now, my, dad, my relationship with my dad was complicated. It was not an idyllic one. Maybe some of you have had the privilege and the, the blessing of having a wonderful father-son or father-daughter relationship. That wasn't my relationship with my dad. It wasn't the worst, but it was far from ideal. And the grief had all these different layers that began. Just grief over the shock of, wow, he's gone. But grief also over all that had been stolen, all of the years that his his pulmonary disease had stolen from his quality of life and how a year of COVID had basically trapped him in his apartment, cut off and isolated from almost everyone, even us, dropping groceries off once a week and with, with fear. And grief over the ways our relationship wasn't perfect and failures he had been as a dad and failures that I'd been as a son 
Can you relate to those layers of grief? And I remember as this was all going on in my life, being very aware in our Grace Church community that I was not the unique one. We were all acquainted with grief. Grief was surrounding us in our church family. We were all able to relate to the groaning of the first line. Do you know that Andrew Peterson song, Is He Worthy? Yeah? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. We know that feeling. It's broken. Near the end of that year, so almost you know, nine, ten months at the end of the year, as a church, our elder team just felt like it's just the cloud wouldn't lift. So many people, we were so aware of our prayer requests for people in our church and the heavy griefs that they were bearing just continued. And we decided we were still meeting outdoor parking lot church, and we decided to have an evening meeting, uh, a prayer service that was just going to be a time of prayers of lament with an open mic. And we just invited our people to come forward. Here's just a sampling of the griefs that our people one by one walked up to the mic and just prayed how long, oh Lord, sorts of prayers for cancer, heart disease, heart deformities, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, arthritis, dementia, mental health, depression, anxiety, isolation, and loneliness. Grief of the death of loved ones, of parents who had been taken in the last year, children, unborn and born, the loss of jobs, the estrangement of relationships through all the craziness of 2020, and on and on and on, a thousand things, our people just cried out, how long, O Lord? And even still, grace, we weren't the only ones. If we opened up a mic right now and we just said, come on forward and offer up a lament right now for a grief that you're carrying, we'd be here till dinner, I would guess. We're all acquainted with grief. Even if right here at this moment your, your life feels pretty good and pretty sunny, the Bible keeps reminding us that we live in a fallen world and death is a 100% rate of success, right? Unless Jesus comes home first. So we need hope, which is why we need to find comfort that the Lord Jesus was acquainted with grief and what that really means for us. So number one point here this morning is that simply this. Jesus was acquainted with grief. And what does that mean? He was, past tense, when he came through the incarnation, born of a virgin, grew into a man and walked this earth, he was acquainted with grief. Now, in one sense, you might think, well, Jesus, he's the, the son of God. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, so that means he's omniscient. Of course he knows grief. He knows everything, which is true. He's omniscient. He knows not just everything, but as my friend Rob Lister likes to point out, he knows everything from all perspectives. He knows what grief is like from your perspective in his omniscience, but still... There is this unique thing that happened when, the, when God the Son took on a fully human body and assumed that forever into the future to his nature. He made himself able to experience in his humanity the grief that we experience as we experience it. John Frame, theologian, says, not only does God know everything from every perspective, even ours, but... There's a difference between eternally knowing what our perspective is or would be and actually taking that perspective on by becoming a human subject. That's what Jesus has done. He was made like us in every respect. 
You know the, the hymn we sing every December? Come to earth to taste our sadness, to taste it. He whose glories knew no end, that's the one who came and tasted our sadness. How did he do it? I just want to give you a few ways. First, he experienced the same sorts of tragedies and losses that we face, like the death of loved ones. I mean, you think about his father, earthly father, Joseph. We don't get much about him in the Bible, very little. But what we learn, he was a godly, a devout man. He treated Mary well. When the angel confronted him and said, no, this, this is something that God's doing, he said, all right. And he stepped up. And he was faithful. The last we hear of him, Jesus is 12, and he's faithfully bringing his wife and son, Jesus, to the temple for Passover. And then he's gone from the Gospels. We don't hear anything else about him. But in Mark chapter 6, people, when Jesus gets back to his hometown, refer to him as the carpenter, not just his father, but him, which implies he'd probably then grown up most of those silent years, working alongside his father, developing that relationship, learning how to work wood from Joseph. No doubt he stood by Mary's side at Joseph's funeral, comforting his mom. In a grief observed, C.S. Lewis wrote when he lost his wife, Joy, as he tried to process the grief he was experiencing, he said, the death of a loved one is like an amputation. It's not just the initial trauma of the loss. It's a thousand griefs in the day-to-day reminders of the loss and pain and the absence of moments that will never be. Do you know that feeling? Jesus does too. Or John the Baptist, who was his cousin and forerunner, he was beheaded by Herod, and his disciples bring him the news, and it says he went off in a desolate place by himself to pray. Now, in his divine nature, Jesus never gave up his omniscience. He never ceased to be God, and yet, through his humanity, he made himself um, vulnerable to the sucker punch of that news you hoped to never get. Maybe you've gotten a call like that. Jesus knows that feeling. In his humanity, he experienced that feeling. Lazarus, his dear friend, would you turn to John chapter 11? I'm going to be here just for a minute. John chapter 11, Jesus has, we're told, delayed coming to rescue Lazarus from deadly illness because God has a plan to show his glory in a particular way. So he, he times it intentionally so he will not be there in time to rescue his, his friend, dear friend Lazarus from death. And he's now in the grave. In verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come with her weeping this funeral beginning to happen, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see Jesus wept. If you grew up in the church and you were like a Sunday school kid like me, John eleven thirty five 35 was just a trivia question answer. What's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. I had no idea as a kid how precious those two words would become. He wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? And deeply moved again, Jesus came to the tomb He knew he was the resurrection and the life. He knew Lazarus was about to walk out of that tomb and this funeral was going to turn into a party. And nevertheless, 
The death of his friend deeply moved him. His knowledge of the victory he was about to bring didn't take away the grief when he stared at the ugliness and the finality that we experience as people in the face of death. Jesus' tears validate our tears. In case you maybe have this misconception, grief, deep grief and, and sadness is not a sign necessarily that you lack faith. Jesus' tears validate our tears. Our tears remind us death is an intruder. This wasn't the original plan. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And as you know, the gut punch feeling that death brings in all of our lives when it enters into our sphere of life, Jesus knows that feeling. But he knows far more grief than just that. He was despised and rejected by his own people. He wept over the city who rejected him. He was betrayed and denied and abandoned by his own disciples in his hour of greatest need. And he experienced a grief that he alone will experience unless you refuse to receive the grace that he endured that grief for, to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And in all these sufferings, Jesus was tasting our sadness he whose glories knew no end. I want to think of one other angle from which Jesus acquainted, was acquainted with grief, though. So he was acquainted by, with grief because in his humanity, he experienced grief, but he also surrounded himself with the sorrows of others for his entire earthly ministry, as we're described. If you read through the Gospels, how often do you read that Jesus came from another town and he saw what he saw and he was moved with compassion? That moving of compassion is a testifying to his acquaintance with grief. He, it's, sorrow is prompted in him when he sees the effect of the fall all around him and the devastation it wreaks in, in our lives. And when he sees what we've made of his world. And he doesn't just come to earth and then stay distant from it, but he goes right into it. For example, Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. They were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he just kept moving toward them, moving toward them. And we, get this, we see this crazy sort of internal struggle with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And on one hand, he'd get to a village and he would say, like Luke 4 says, all who had any sick with any diseases would come to him and he laid his hands on every one of them. You can imagine him just seeing and like realizing, I can heal you right now and you right now and you right now. And on one hand, him wanting to just heal now. But then we see him saying the next day when people would seek him out for more healing, he says, no, no, I got to go to the next town and the next town. And I got to go to Jerusalem. Why? I got to do something about what the root cause of all this is. And he struggles in each town to move toward people in their hurt and help it in the media and be an immediate comfort, but also to do something that would provide eternal comfort. I want to ask us here, friends, as we behold this in Jesus, his desire to comfort and heal, but also to bring ultimate healing, are we moved in the same way toward others? Do you have a growing desire both to do all you can to the people that God has put in your sphere of influence to relieve their grief, bear their burdens, and bring comfort in their suffering now, 
but not just to leave it there, but also want to help them if they don't know the only one who's our only comfort in life and death. That's becoming like Jesus as we behold the one who was acquainted with grief. But secondly, it gets more personal. I'll make this shorter, but Jesus wasn't just acquainted with grief when he came and then he rose and ascended into heaven and now he's just distant from it all and his grief was over. But second point this morning is this, Jesus is acquainted with your grief personally, specifically, today, as your advocate in heaven, interceding for you before the Father. He is acquainted with your grief. Listen to this from Revelation 21, verse 4. One day when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is that an amazing promise? Every tear, I think, is a way of communicating to us there will not be a single grief, large or small, that will be overlooked by Jesus when he returns and comforted fully. Every last one. Psalm 56, 8 uses the image of a bottle. You've kept count of my tossings and you've put my tears in your bottle, God. Are they not in your book? And we're supposed to answer, of course they are. Every last one. So, friends, this morning, what is your greatest grief right now? I want you to think about it. I want you to think, Jesus knows he's been there, but he knows the specifics of your grief that you're burdened by right now. He knows your deal. And I want to end with this. Three reasons we can take comfort now, taking that truth of who Jesus is. He was acquainted with his grief. He knows your personal uh, present grief and everything that's yet to come. Why is that a comfort? Three reasons. I'm sure there's more, but here's three. Number one, because Jesus was acquainted with grief for a time, this is huge, because Jesus was acquainted with grief for a time, we, if we're in him, will only be acquainted with grief for a time. Turn to 1 Peter 1. That's where we're going to be for the last bit here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. First thing I want us to see that he says in here is that all our griefs, if we're in Christ, have an expiration date. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who right now, until you get that, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. So all that is just beholding Jesus and, and what's yet to come, he says, then this. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you underline in your Bible, which I highly recommend, underline the phrase, a little while. 
because Peter is not trying to trivialize your pain. Maybe you read that and you think, that's kind of a harsh thing to say, Peter. This doesn't feel like a little while. But he knows. (laughs) He's just seeing it against the backdrop of this eternal, imperishable, living hope in which we rejoice even if now for a little while. Because of our hope in Christ, if you turn from your sin to God in faith through Christ, you have this eternal future that I just read about. And there is a future for you where mourning and crying and pain will forever be placed into the category of former things that have passed away. That should blow our minds. The totality of all the things that cause us to grief one day will be eternally moved into the category of things that have passed away. They are no more. There will come a day, I think about this frequently, try to imagine we have an eternal future. If we have an eternal future, there will come a day one day when you will have been so far into this glorious eternal future with God that all those former things will be so far in the rearview mirror that you'll turn to someone and say, do you remember when death was something? And they'll say... Kind of. It'll be so far in the rearview mirror that all there is ahead is glory and grace lavished upon us, the kindness of Jesus forever. And Peter is wanting us to say, listen, I know that day, that day's not here yet, and I know it feels like a long time, but one day you're going to see it was a little while. Hang on. Don't lose heart. Second comfort this morning. And Jesus, having been acquainted with grief, is this. The knowledge that the one who ordains your suffering was acquainted with grief should be a comfort. Here's what I mean. I believe that the Bible teaches us, even right here in this passage, when he says, in this you rejoice, though, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Who do you think that necessary is talking about? He means if necessary to God. If God sees certain sufferings and trials and valleys of the shadow of death as necessary to bring about in your life your greatest and most everlasting good. And that is a hard theological truth for us to fully agree with and be on board with in our hearts because it's so hard for us to see, isn't it? But here's why, for me, it's helpful to remember the one who ordains our suffering is the one who was acquainted with grief. I can trust my trials, if they're being ordained by him. I was thinking of this. Surely an oncologist who has personally gone through full rounds of chemo and radiation themselves in treating their own cancer would not then turn and prescribe that for someone else. Let's just see if that'll, just haphazardly or arbitrarily, but would say, unless this is really necessary, but if it is, we're going to do it. How much more surely can we be that our Lord does not prescribe our griefs and sufferings haphazardly or with cold indifference? There may be some griefs that we experience in our life that we will never until eternity have a very good answer for why was that necessary, God? But I believe that in eternity it will all become clear in hindsight And we will not fault God for a single trial. 
Final comfort. It's not just that the one who was acquainted with grief is the one who ordains our suffering and our griefs, but he's also the one who comforts us in all of our affliction. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he has promised us to personally make good on that promise to us. Is that who you want as your comforter? The one who is that acquainted with grief and he's acquainted with your grief intimately? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 about the way that God comforts us through Christ. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Through whom? As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly too. Do you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus was telling his disciples, it's it's good that I go away, and they couldn't understand how that could possibly be good? And he says, it's good because when I go, the Father's going to send the Comforter. My Spirit will dwell in you. The Comforter will dwell in you, not just standing with you, but will dwell in you. And he will comfort you from the inside out. As we close this morning, I want us to picture where Jesus is right now. He's still incarnate. He's still the God-man. He still bears the scars of the cross, but he's risen in an imperishable glory, resurrection glory that one day we will share with him. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He's our advocate. He's interceding for you. And here's how I want to close. I want you to right now hold your griefs in your mind and be reminded as we close, can you see him? Here's how we want you to see him. Hebrews 4, 14. Through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need, in our time of grief. Can you see him this morning? Acquainted with grief, acquainted with your grief. I want to invite you right now to take a moment. Things are going to get busy today, hot. You guys are going to have a fun day today. But take a moment of silence here right now. And I want you to bring whatever your griefs are to the Lord. The Lord who's risen and ascended, interceding for you who knows your grief, who's felt it himself in the flesh. And I want you to cast your cares on him right now because he cares for you and ask him to bring that comfort he described that the God of all comfort can give to you right now. I'm going to give you that minute quietly. I'm not going to go anywhere. And I want to pray for you.